Well, greetings from Catalina Foothills Church. I'm an associate pastor over there, and it's hard to believe, but I've been there for seven and a half years. And uh, this is the second longest place I've lev- ever lived in one place. I'm used to moving every two, three, four, five years, so it's been quite a good run over there. If you would please turn in your Bibles to John 13. If you're new to the Scriptures, about a third of the way back in your Bible, or two-thirds of the way to the back, uh, you'll find uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll be looking at John chapter 13. A little bit of popping there. I'm going to lower that. Is that okay? Is that better? Uh, There were five solas of the Reformation, and they were pillars on which the reform and transformation of the church took place. And for many of the, for you all, this will be familiar. They were sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Sola Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Sola Christo, Christ alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. And sola gratia, grace alone. And all of these have tremendous impact on us today. However, it is the last one, by grace alone, that I would like for us to focus on this morning. And as you've seen the title, it's a Disequilibrating Grace is the title of my sermon. And I have a handout to help us this morning. So if I could have a few of the men come here and let's try to get one for a family perhaps and, uh, and make sure we have enough to hand out. And, but if you would do me a favor, just don't open it up. Just look at the first page, the first picture, and we'll go through it together. And that will help the process of our learning this morning. And as you see there, we'll wait for that to be handed out. But uh, it's a bad day uh, in the lives of some of these folks. And, and you'll see what I mean as you look at these pictures. And, and while the men are passing that out, uh, I did pick up a, some kind of sign of something or other from uh, the Midwest as I was coming back last weekend. So if my voice gives out, I'm doing the best I can to uh, suck on some lozenges. I have some water, so please bear with me if it starts to fade after 15 or 20 minutes, but I'll do my best this morning. I asked Steve if you had uh, video or screens or anything like that, and he goes, not in this this building, but perhaps in the future, so we'll see. So I made some handouts, so thank you for uh, taking a look at that. It's it's a rather unique title, Disequilibrating Grace, I understand, but we hopefully will all better understand this in a second. So we're going to look at some pictures this morning, and uh, what I want to ask you is, pay attention, what do all of these pictures have in common? What do they all have in common? So the first one there, that's a bad day for that shipping company, is it not? Okay? That's a bad day. So what, are the, what do all these pictures have in common? Let's turn the page and, and look on the back, and you'll see a, a man at the Great Wall of China. Okay, he was fixing to uh, jump, as you see with his bike, over the wall. Wow. Um, it wasn't so much the takeoff, it's more the landing that hurts, right? Okay. Um, wow, that's a bad day at the office. So let's go ahead and, and flip over, and, and you'll see this picture of the pool. If you'll please take a look at that, and um, shucks, I don't know if I want to dive off that diving board, but do you see what's in there? That's a minivan in the deep end of the pool. That's a bad day at the office. And if you would please turn over to the back side of that page, on page four, this is one of the professor's uh, houses at Covenant Seminary, Dr. Donald Guthrie, and this is his house. Um, 
somebody drove into his house right there, into that front bedroom. And uh, if you'll flip the page, you'll get another view of that up close and personal. That's a bad day at the office. There are two assumptions that I'll be talking about, but people tend to make the most progress in learning when things don't make sense and they have to re-examine their assumptions. And secondly, community, fellowship, biblical community is, is a byproduct of shared disequilibrium. Okay? So there you go. That's the introduction. And uh, I have a question for you. Um, do you know what animal makes the, this kind of noise? Well, I didn't know either. But I used to work for the Navigators, a campus ministry up at the University of Northern Iowa. We lived about 10, 11 miles south of uh, Cedar Falls in a little town called Hudson. And cell phones were brand new. And I got this call from my wife. She goes, uh, honey, there's a bat in the basement. There's a bat in the basement. I go, oh, there's not a bat in your basement. There might be a bat in your attic, but there's not a bat in the basement. And she goes, no, no, I swear, there's, you've got to get home. I said, well, actually, I just finished up my Bible study. I am on my way home. I'll be there in 15 or 20 minutes, and then I'll take a look. Now, men, I have to let you know, I was a little incredulous. My, my wife grew up on a farm, and she bucked bales, and, and she, <laughs> uh, she helped out with cattle, and, and she used to get the eggs from the chicken house. My wife ought to know the difference between a butterfly, a bird, a bat, a mouse, something like that, correct? And so it was one of those things where I was like, okay, young mom, two kids, it's been a long day. Uh, shucks, she, she's just not quite thinking clearly. So uh, being the man of the house, I arrive, and um, in all of my pride and in my folly, I said, okay, show me this bat. And so we go down the stairs, and she's following behind me. And at this time, I think the kids are already asleep in, the, in their rooms upstairs, and and we go down, and I'm, I'm looking around, and, and then I hear this. I'm like, gosh, that's not like a gerbil or a mouse. You know, what is that? So I start peering between the, the, the washer and the dryer, and, and there it is. And its wings are spread. It's trying to crawl up the side of the wall because a bat must fall down in order to start flying. It can't just up and fly. So it starts to climb the wall. And so being the man of the house, I go running, and it all goes in slow motion. I pass up my wife. And I go up the stairs, I open up the door, I wait long enough to let her go by me, and then I shut the door. <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad, but uh, I, did, I did hurry her up the stairs and uh, caught my breath, and I said, honey, there's a bat in the basement. <laughs> uh, my night and my family life was just turned upside down, uh, right in that moment, Okay. And in my defense, you must know that I had my, my best friend in all the world up through fourth grade before I moved was, was Stevie Wilkie, and he gotten bit by a dog and had rabies. And I watched them back in the day. Remember when you used to have to do a shot right in your stomach and then it'd do clockwise? You go to 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and you'd do it like that morning and evening for 12 days. That's how they used to give rabies shots. It's not that way anymore, as I understand it. That was in the back of my mind. Like, I don't want to get bit. I don't want my kids to get bit. So there was some fear and panic in my in my being. But the whole evening had been turned upside down by a little bat. And now, friends, I am in the middle of disequilibration. 
and so was my wife, and so was the whole rest of the evening. Do you get the picture? Disequilibration happens when your ship turns upside down. Disequilibration happens when you lose control of your bike in midair, when a minivan busts through the backyard fence and into your pool, and when a car careens over the curb past a big oak tree and runs into your living room. That is disequilibration in the lives of people. And you see, Jesus brings disequilibrating situations to grow us, to grow us. And so as I already mentioned, people tend to make the most progress in learning in, in Christ-like growth when things don't make sense and you have to re-examine those assumptions. And secondly, as a byproduct of shared disequilibrium is community, is community. And so as we contemplate disequilibrating grace this morning, let's take a look at the Gospel of John. We're in the last week of Jesus' life, and he's about to teach and explain is there something I need to do, Matt, to keep that from popping? That's just me. Okay. It's just the way I talk. Sorry, folks. So we're in the last week of his life. And so let me just share some of these highlights. Uh, in John 13, Jesus says, Wash one another's feet. I, as a Lord and teacher, have set you an example. And Jesus says, It's been a good ride, and I enjoy our team, but one of you will betray me. And Peter you, you are going to deny me. Chapter 14. I have a helper, the Spirit of truth. He will dwell with you and live in you. Chapter 15. This I command. Love one another as I have loved you. If the world hates you, know that it also hated me before it hated you. So this is where we find ourselves This is God's holy word. I'll be reading out of two passages in John 13, starting in verse 31 through 37, and then I'll I'll switch over to John 14. Please pay attention to God's holy scripture. When he had gone out, Jesus said, chapter 13, verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You, are, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Chapter 14, starting in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Here ends the scripture reading. The grass withers and the flower fades. 
But the Word of God that you just heard here this morning, this will endure forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, in Christ we've been justified, sanctified, and adopted among other things. Thank you for setting us apart for your glory, calling us as sons and daughters, and making us right in our relationship with you. As your children, we ask that you lead us into greater faith and understanding this morning. And as your grace enables, we will trust you in all ways and in all times. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen and amen. Four questions we can ask from this text. And what does Jesus say and do as a teacher to disequilibrate his listeners? What does Jesus do as a teacher to disequilibrate his listeners? What are the responses of the listeners? Where is the gospel in Jesus' redemptive, disequilibrating work? And what structure or what supports and challenges does he provide? So we'll take these one at a time, friends. So what does he say? What does he do to disequilibrate his listeners? Think of this. You're one of the disciples and he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm going to leave you. What would you be thinking? You had just given three, three and a half, close to four years of your life following this man who you, who you know and you think to be the Messiah. You've seen miracles. You've seen challenges where people want to stone him, but you've also seen him heal. And he's got quite a following. You've left everything to follow Jesus. And he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. That's one of those bad days at the office. That's when you're as a team, you're going, uh, where's the captain going? The coach is leaving. What are we going to do? Have you ever had a partner in business bail out on you? Have you ever had a close friend choose not to be your friend anymore? This is what the 12 disciples were experiencing when Jesus proclaimed, where I'm going, you cannot come. They had went with him everywhere. And now he was leaving them, he said. So secondly, what are the responses of the listeners? In verses 36 and 37, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, Lord. In this instance, Peter had more questions, and he also stated his loyalty to Jesus. And we do this all the time. When hard times hit, friends, we have this uncanny ability uh, when our world is disequilibrated and turned upside down. We start asking the, the why question or, or the what are you up to, Lord, kind of questions. Here's what they sound like. God, why did my spouse have to die Why me? Why did I have to lose my job, Lord? I got married till death do us part. Why am I going through this divorce? Lord, of all my siblings, I'm the one who exercises and eats well, and why am I the one getting cancer? You know, I was so faithful. Why are my kids rebelling, Lord? Oh, Father, I've done my best to be a prayer warrior. Why do I see my grandchildren hurting and suffering? 
I've given five, six decades to you, Lord. Why am I in a loveless marriage? Do you understand the questions? When disequilibration happens and you turn upside down, we ask those kind of what and why questions in the process of experiencing His grace. And oftentimes our questions can come from deep, hurting parts in our hearts. And, and sometimes they're a little more accusatory, are they not? Jesus, how am I going to pay these bills? Oh, when will I ever find joy again in my life? I am so overwhelmed in my life right now. Are you really the Prince of Peace? Lord, I want to provide. How will I have the courage to send out one more resume, make one more phone call, or knock on one more office door? The rejection is becoming so painful. I'm so out of control. I have prayed and prayed and prayed. When will I stop binging and purging? When will I stop abusing? I hate this part of me and it's so out of control. I can't stop cutting. When will the pain go away? I just want to be pain free. Sometimes we say that with a lot more hurt and a lot more pain. But those are the kind of questions, those are the kind of statements that come to us when our worlds are turned upside down. Now, Peter's questions were not accusatory, but sincerely, I believe, inquisitive. He really wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to be about this disciple-making business that Jesus had been training he and the other 11 disciples to be about. But once we get done asking our questions to God, most of us usually find that we are back in the place of resting in Him and trusting in Him with all of our cares and all of our current concerns, all of our doubts and all of our failures. You see, Peter wanted to be about reaching the world. He had signed up and he said, yes, and we're gonna, we are going to take this gospel message out. But now you're leaving. Yes, Jesus, I'm up for following you and, and my world's been turned upside down. And, and in the middle of all this, we find ourselves with these accusatory questions, these heartfelt, painful questions and most of us, by God's grace, get past that initial part of that acute pain where we come back to the Father and we experience His grace again. For He never does leave us or forsake us. So why can we trust Jesus when our world gets turned upside down? We'll return to this in a little bit, but in Romans 5, verse 5, it says this, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God pours His love in the moment when we're asking those questions and we're feeling uh, the disequilibration in our life and everything's topsy-turvy. And it's right then and there that His love is poured into our hearts. We find hope again. Number three, where is the gospel experience in Jesus' redemptive, disequilibrating grace? Where is the gospel experienced in this? Verse 33, when Jesus speaks to them tenderly as a father, he says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. It's the gospel reminding them we're a family. You're my adopted children. 
Verse 31, he speaks to the glory, God's glory. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. We see the gospel both in tender guidance and in Jesus bringing glory to himself and the Father, listen to this, in all circumstances. Even when your world is turned upside down and the disequilibration has you is wondering which way is north and which way is south, even in that... Jesus is bringing glory to himself and to the Father. So how do we experience this grace in a redemptive way? Well, I'll say this. We do this when, here are some examples. We take a meal to a family that has a newborn. Nothing like a newborn to turn uh, the status quo upside down. How do we minister in Christ's name? How do we bring grace to somebody whose life has been turned upside down? We bring them a meal. We take a meal or do household chores to someone who is sick and too weak and they can't even take care of their own house. Or perhaps we run an errand on their behalf for them. We sit with someone who is in emotional pain and we don't say anything. Our physical and emotional presence is enough. You know, Job had some, uh, if I could be so bold and crass, some idiots for friends. (laughs) But if you read in there, they did a beautiful thing. For one week, they went and sat with Job in sackcloth and ashes, and they didn't say one thing for a whole week. Do you believe that you are a a person made in the image of God and your glory is enough, your personhood is enough, that when somebody is hurting and when somebody is sick and you're not quite sure what to say or what to do, that your presence, and perhaps you're praying like crazy inside, but your presence is enough. To communicate, I'm with you. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. But I'm, here I am. I'm with you. That you, your presence is enough. You are the gospel incarnate to one another. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. And maybe he'll give you something to say. And maybe he'll give you something to do. But friends, the gift of your presence is precious. We live in a world that's supposed to be so connected with technology. And it's the most disconnected sickly relational generation that we're raising up. Your presence is powerful. Amen? Amen. God is always glorified when we serve in Jesus' name. Uh, Fourth, what structure, what supports and challenges does He provide? (laughs) Verse 34. Hey, a new commandment I'm giving. I'm leaving... But here's a new command I'm going to give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. And by, all, by this, all men, all the people of the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here's the challenge. Go and love one another. I'm leaving, but you continue. You keep on loving one another. And Jesus gives us support in the middle of this mess by giving us people who will love us. When your world gets turned upside down and you're feeling and experiencing disequilibration, it will be those people who come in Jesus' name and stand with you that are loving you. And you get to do that to others. Go and love in my name. All the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So today, please ask the Lord how you could show love to someone this week. Perhaps it's a coworker or a neighbor, an adult child or a spouse. 
how do we harness then this disequilibrium? How has Jesus brought disequilibrium to your life and to your ministry? Think about that right now. What's been turned upside down? How are you flying off your bike of life? How has a van showed up in the pool of your life? How has your ship been turned on on its side? Do you see the fingerprints of Jesus in the middle of that? Can you embrace that trial and that challenge that Jesus is allowed to come into your life? You know, how do Christian teachers redemptively steward disequilibrium in their teaching and learning activities with the students? How do parents use disequilibrium with their children to train them? How can an employer use disequilibrium to train their employees? And let me ask you this. How is God using disequilibrium in your church here at Desert Springs to bring about maturity? that His love would be poured into your hearts? Have you asked the question? You see, disequilibrium in life is Jesus' invitation to come to Him. I'm not going to read it, but if I could just remind you, in John 14, when He gives the Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit of peace. And it's the Spirit He is going to remind you of all these teachings. And that's what I mean, friends. In the middle of being turned upside down, it's the Holy Spirit. He comes and He reminds you, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Don't worry, you who have a heavy burden. Mine's easy. Mine's light. You see nothing but obstacles. I'm the door. You see nothing but darkness. Well, I'm the light. Jesus will pour His love into you so that hope Hope will never fail in the middle of your disequilibrating life events. So back to Romans 5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And I know, friends, that when we go through a disequilibrating events, we do not feel like we're standing because we've been knocked over. In fact, I think most of us feel like we're on top of our heads at times. But it's His grace that allows us to stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God when you're upside down? It's not natural. But the Spirit of peace... The Holy Spirit will allow us to do that. More than that, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. We all say we want to be mature, but we don't want to go through that process. We live in a microwave society, an instant oatmeal society, an instant muscles society. Just shoot up. But the problem is with Christ-like growth is it's a hard process. Have you ever seen those races where at a a corporate picnic or some kids' events, you know, sometimes they'll have that baseball bat and you put it on your forehead and you put it on the ground and you start spinning around and then they have you run a 50-foot race? 
We all laugh at it because you see these on America's Funniest Videos. But that's what happens in life. You've seen your non-Christian friends, and perhaps there's a few of you who are not followers of Christ, and you think you're running down life, and all of a sudden you're veering off because there's a disequilibrium in your life. Perhaps you've seen a loved one who starts veering off because they're kind of dizzy in life. Disequilibrating events can get us spinning and off kilter, but it's God's grace that lets us stand. And so therefore, friends, according to Romans 5, let us rejoice in the suffering because it leads to endurance, which leads to character, and it leads to hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. When disequilibration enters our world, many things are up for review. And I don't know about you when a bat ends up in your basement, but I'm thinking I will call animal control at 9, 9.15 at night, and surely there's somebody on call who will come out here. And I get a hold of animal control, and they say, we don't do bats. <laughs> you know, a bull in the basement, a, wild, a, a raccoon in the kitchen, I don't know, but we don't do bats. And so, uh, <laughs> what do you do? So you call up your Methodist pastor friend, who's about four houses up, and, and you say, John, I got a bat in the basement. Will you come on down? Because remember, community is a byproduct of disequilibration. <laughs> And so I give him my thickest leather gloves and I give him a pair of barbecue tongs. <clears throat> Don't ask me why. <laughs> he was going to grab it in midair. I have no idea. I just gave it to him. And I said, John, stand right behind me. I don't need that kind of paraphernalia. I have a baseball glove in one hand and a tennis racket in the other. And I go down that stair, and those stairs in Bolton because my friend is right behind me. My wife is up behind the closed door to the kitchen praying. And we go down there and I hear that... And I find that little rascal, I mean, that pterodactyl, he was so, I'm just kidding, it was just a bat. Um, but when there's disequilibration in your life, you know, if you ever heard a man talk about fishing stories, you understand how. So anyway, it was getting bigger. The, the bat seemed bigger and bigger. And I saw him, and there he was. He was still climbing up that wall. And he was just, I just know he's fixing to, to drop off and start flying around that room. So I took the tennis racket, and I knocked it down. I scooped him up, and I'm not sure exactly how hard I squeezed, but he was not going to get out. And we go running up the stairs, <clears throat> out the back door, or actually the side garage door onto the driveway, and there's this tree, and I'm thinking, throw him up in the air. If he lands in the tree, surely he'll stick there for a while, and then he'll drop down after the trauma, and he'll be okay. So I just, I throw him up. He went right down. I go, oh, I don't know if I killed him. What do I do? Can't let the kids see him. So being the neighborly thing I did, I just kind of picked him up and threw him over to the neighbor's grass. <laughs> right over there. <laughs> We're in the middle of disequilibration, friends. Um, but it was not in my yard. I was not worried about it. In the morning, I'll go out and I'll check and see if he's there. What do I need to do? Uh, next morning, he's gone. So the bat's taken care of. I don't know where he went. I don't know if an animal picked him up or if he got up and flew away. He was by a tree. He could have climbed over there. What do you do when disequilibration happens in your life? How do you handle that? From the Scriptures, I would say that Jesus is all about setting up 
chaos, um, some disequilibrating events in your life, for the sake of drawing near, for the sake of greater faith, for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of knowing the Spirit's work in your life, for the sake of His glory and your good. I am a licensed associate counselor. I hear about the pain and the trauma day after day, week after week. I know the sufferings of the body of Christ and of the world. So I'm not going to sugarcoat that this is easy. But Christ is sovereign. And He allows these events, these disequilibrating events. When you have equilibrium, life is good. When you don't have equilibrium, it's disequilibrium. But in His grace, He meets you right there. And it's not just something that I'm talking about pie in the sky. It's for you. It's for you. It's for you. It's for you. Because He pours His love into your hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to You right now and we acknowledge that uh, in our flesh we are weak. And there have been times that we have cried out with accusatory questions and statements. We're sorry. Please forgive us. We acknowledge that You are good. And we have not always acknowledged that goodness. And yet it is our desire to follow You even in the highlights and the heartaches at the mountaintops and in the valleys of life. And so would You please forgive us. And even now, May we know your grace in the middle of all of life's disequilibrating events. We'll trust you with the faith, the courage, the ability to walk in those ways. It's in Christ's name I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen.